This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to History Worth Repeating. Alpie Hartley wrote that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. My name is Barbara Brooks and I'm a professor of history at the University of Otago. And my name is Sonia Tiernan. I'm the Eamon Leary Professor of Irish Studies at the University of Otago. Together, over the series of podcasts, we want to canvas wide aspects of the past, from individual stories to national histories, from political events to emotional tides. We believe that some history is worth repeating, especially if those histories have been previously overlooked, ignored or not deemed worthy of entry into the history books. Today, we're going to think about a history that few people have explored, and that is the relationship between Ireland and New Zealand. And we're going to think about what they have got in common. So one thing that occurs to me is we have this favourite phrase, the luck of the Irish. Where did that phrase come from, Sonia? Yeah, it's a great phrase, Barbara, because um, we always get the idea that uh, the Irish are instilled with some kind of mythical power or something and that we always, we're always lucky. But actually, it arrives, first of all, in the mid-19th century. And it started in America, where at the time, the Irish were actually perceived as being lazy and quite unskilled. Um, and... Well, at the time in the mid-19th century, they're working in the gold mines. But even though they've taught that they don't know exactly what they're doing, they're extremely successful at gold mining. So it's put down to pure luck. So it's actually used as that in that derogatory way in the beginning. Well, that's so fascinating because now we kind of think the Irish are, are inherently uh, yeah. full of good luck. Yeah, um, if only. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm really puzzled about why anyone in Ireland in the 19th century would be interested in New Zealand at all, because it's really, as I think is the title of a book, the father, farthest promised land, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing. And actually, if we start looking at, I suppose even now, the distance to get from Ireland to here is the furthest. It's obviously it hasn't moved, so it's still the furthest point, but it's also the most expensive. So at the time in the mid-19th century, again, if we're sticking to the same time period, it's about five times the cost to get from Ireland to New Zealand as it is to get to America. But actually, we don't have... Irish emigrants at this stage automatically coming here from the early period. The earlier period being that kind of 1840s when the Irish famine hits and you've got a mass exodus of Irish people and they generally go to England, Canada, America and even to Australia but they don't go to New Zealand. And part of it is that there isn't as much of an attraction for New Zealand. There isn't already people there, family there. But after, of course, we get into the 1861, as we've just mentioned, the gold mining in America, we have the gold rush hitting here in 1861 in Otago and a considerable amount of Irish come just that shorter journey from Australia or in some instances from America. So we've got them ending up here then. But we also have 
a considerable number of Irishmen here who are serving in, in the army, in the British army, who are part of the New Zealand wars. So we certainly know that around by 1871 into 1880, we end up with a huge Irish population in Auckland after the discharge of men from the, from the army. Um, and around this time as well, actually one fifth of the immigrant population are Irish across the entire of New Zealand. So there is an increase. And there's also some assisted passages schemes that the Irish pick up on, especially um, this kind of chain migration where relatives can then um, follow follow over. So, I mean, two things interest me about what you've just said. And the first is mining. So Mm. was there mining in Ireland? No. So, so, no. so they just got gold fever like everyone else around yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've got like, you know, you've got those kind of bigger areas in near Wales that would have been like coal mining. But um, no Tin mining in Cornwall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but not Ireland isn't seen as it, it's not even the south of Ireland actually even isn't industrial in that way. It's still farming. It's more in the north of Ireland and around Belfast that you've got more of those kind of industries. Um, but no mining wouldn't have been right. Certainly wouldn't have been part and parcel of. Yeah. So the second thing is, you know, Irish serving in the British mm. Army. So it seems like you know they're. <laughs> serving their conquerors. Um, yeah. So why would Irishmen volunteer to serve? In, or were they press ganged? Or it's. I mean, it is. Obviously, it's an interesting one. And I don't know so much about press ganged. I think really the biggest answer is money. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't. And actually, as I just said about like not having big industries, and it's really just based on, on farming land. And after the English have colonised, they've taken away all the land from, from the Irish and they're they're renting it back to them. Really small parcels of land. It's over farmed. This is what kind of builds up into the beginning of the famine as well, mm-hmm. because there's too many people trying to farm on small parcels of land. So there's very little things actually for um, somebody to do to earn money. And therefore, joining the army is going to be a big one. But we do have the instance, of course, that still to this day, it would be called taking the Queen's shilling or back in the day, taking the King's shilling, whoever um, was the monarch of the time. So many men who joined the British army and fought in a British uniform would wouldn't would not have been welcomed back in Ireland, regardless of the time. So what, where, do you know where that phrase comes from, the Queen's it, it's it's really just because that's where they're earning the money. money. Yeah. And I, I suppose if you join the army, there are sort of added uh, benefits, like a pension maybe. Yeah. Um, and would they pay those to Irish men? Yeah, and yeah. not only that, you have... I mean, even later, actually, it, it's quite interesting when we get to something like the 1916 Rising because it's the general post office that is the lead, uh, the headquarters in that. The biggest controversy that happened during that week is the separation women tried to break into the general post office because they were the wives oh, of so these oh. soldiers and they needed payment and yeah. they would get money. So mm. it was quite an interesting turn because suddenly you have these Irish women trying to overpower the rebels so yes, that they can get into get post office. So, yeah. yeah, so even the, the wives would have been earning money. So the big, it was a big attraction, unfortunately, because it was just into money. Yeah, and um, so they got sent across the world in various regiments, including yeah. to here in 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, the one, kind of the biggest one that would have served here was known as it's the 18th Royal Regiment. It's also known as Paddy's Blackguards. I know. And they were sent over here in 1863. So they were actually established in Ireland um, centuries earlier. Uh, so they would have they would have come straight over. So you can kind of see the attraction of what happens as well, that there's very little in Ireland, to be fair, to go back to. But also if you're going to go back and you've been wearing the Crown's uniform and you're not going to be welcome in many parts of your land, when they're discharged from the from the army in New Zealand, they're here and suddenly it's the land of opportunity and it's much better. So why would you go home? So a lot yeah. of them stay. Yeah, so I, I hadn't thought about that before, that actually going home when you've served with the British is not, not a great idea. So yeah. <laughs> it's better to settle somewhere else. Yeah. So what do you think... Do you think the Irish stood out in any way in in nineteenth century New Zealand? Would have been whether they been identified by any characteristics? Yeah, it, it's a difficult one in some ways because certainly what you think about with the Irish standing out in other countries is that they've gone to first. They would have stood out a lot more because they're arriving directly as a consequence of the famine in in many instances. So they're very poor, they're very dishevelled. They actually look sick and and in many instances they are. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where you've got these kind of concerns about people thinking that they're lazy and unskilled. And it's actually because they're not, they're very sick and they're, they're, you know, they need to be built up. They also are Irish speakers, of course, because again, it's not that long since we've lost our language, which was also part of the colonisation, that eventually the, the British Empire moved out of the Irish language. If you wanted to get schooling, if you wanted to um, work, essentially, you had to speak English. But by the 1840s and into the 1850s, people are just speaking Irish. So they arrived to different countries just with that language. By the time they get here to New Zealand, they've already been to England and or to America or to Australia. So they've already picked up the Irish language in many instances. The English language. The English language, sorry, of <laughs> course. Yeah, I know, I'm backed into the Irish language. I'm a bit stuck on it. Um, yeah, so I don't know whether they would have been as obvious, but of course, in the same way as I'm an Irish immigrant and I'm going to be obvious because of the way I speak is different. The fact that I'm more interested in Irish things, that I probably at that stage of its mid-19th century would surround myself more with Irish people. Um, so in that way, they're probably standing out, I think. Yeah. Did they form groups? Do you know? Again, I think that's really interesting about the Irish in New Zealand because that's what they do when they go to America and they go to Canada. And we know, we can see this even now when you think of the Irish in America, for example. There's still a massive community. In Canada, it's the same thing that we end up with um, the Irish arriving through, through Canada and staying in the same area together. And they actually form villages where they still, they marry into the, the, the same the people that have come over, they keep the language and we've still got Gaelic-speaking communities in Canada. In New Zealand, what I find really interesting is they mix and they don't, and perhaps it's that they don't come over in as big groups, that they are coming over for the gold rush or they're coming over for different independent reasons. So they tend to mix. An awful lot of them as well are unmarried, which is quite different to the population arriving. So they married the New Zealand. I guess the soldiers, they couldn't... Exactly. You had to be single, didn't you, to join the British Army? 
Right. I'm yeah, not, I'm I mean, not I totally can't remember sure. when that when that changes, but yeah. they would all be single men. Yeah. Or, or maybe certainly. maybe they're married, but their wives are on the other side of the world. Yeah. And actually, we know that bigamy was very common in the 19th sure. century. So yeah, it was. Um, and who's going to find out? Who's going to find out? <laughs> there was no way of finding out. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, really. So they, so they, so marry. they were maybe forced to mix, really, because if they wanted a yeah, yeah, a family, I, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. I would think yeah. so. And mm. it certainly seems that actually, you know, some of them come over here. It is actually to find a, to find a partner if they're moving from, especially places like Australia, to actually settle. Um, and I think what's great as well is that it's not just sticking to one community. The the Irish are seen to mix right across. They start in the Otago region. They move across over to where when the gold rush is moving, they're moving. But they also integrate with the Maori population and marry marry into the Maori mm. population too. So now that you've got quite a lot of people with Irish heritage throughout mm. the population of New Zealand, is really interesting, interesting. Actually, yeah. So one of the groups I know um, did form were Irish land leagues and. Mm. Um, it, it seems kind of slightly ironic to me that having, you know, come to this new place and get your hands on land, which you would never have been able to do yeah. in Ireland yeah. because of the British, you're kind of unaware that the land belonged to the indigenous people. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think when you've got some of them, certainly some of them that are integrating with the indigenous people and marrying in, mm. I think they're very aware I mean, we've got um, we've got one high profile Mary man at the moment, actually, Tippy. Am I pronouncing his name right? O'Regan, who Tiffany O'Regan, Tiffany mm. O'Regan, who Sir has, Tiffany O'Regan. yeah, who <laughs> has two Irish grandparents, mm. and one of those was um, really actually an illiterate um, man who came from the west of Ireland who came over. So we've got those people. But I don't think, I think you're right. I don't think the vast majority of the Irish are like integrating and thinking, oh, isn't this terrible what's been done to the indigenous people? I think in many instances, unfortunately, that um, the Irish obviously were oppressed for centuries, actually. And I think in many ways, when they get to other countries, they don't really always think of the oppression that others have suffered, unfortunately, because we can see the same throughout other countries. So they really are looking not so much at the indigenous population and seeing that actually now, if you look at it, there's very clear similarities between what happens when we're talking about the land grabbing, essentially, the erasure of culture, of language. All of these things are so similar Similar. for the indigenous population here and in Ireland. But of course, when the Irish get here, in many instances, they're looking at what um, the Europeans, the white Europeans have have settled and found and the fact that they've got home rule and self-government and that's what they want. And they Mm. think, well, why can't we be like them? Mm. And I guess they're focused on the future in a way. Absolutely. They're escaping a past. So they're thinking about a future for their children that involves them doing well and taking any opportunity they can get. Yeah, and I guess the other way of looking at it is as well that if you were going to come over here and start fighting for in any land for the rights of an indigenous population, why not stay at home and do it for your own, you know, in that sense? Is that what those land leagues were about? I, I don't quite understand what they were. Yeah, so the land leagues is that... Like back into that idea that the the land has been taken and parcelled off and rented out um, to tenant farmers. And in many instances, the the, the rents that are being charged 
are absolutely ludicrous. They're, they're, they're too high. They can't. The people just cannot afford um, to keep the land going and pay these rents. So we end up with people like Michael Davos, who was, was the son himself of a tenant farmer who'd been evicted because they couldn't keep up with the rent payments. And they went to England. And the land leagues were were all about uh, protecting the tenants. So people, and actually, the, we have people like Parnell, Charles Stewart Parnell, but his two sisters were Anna and Fanny Parnell were very involved in the land league movement. So they would do things like if they heard that somebody was going to be evicted from their farm, they would turn up and they would literally try to stop them from bulldozing the property because they would That's level the property to the ground. I mean, it's so interesting because yeah. at the same time here, well, you know, by the 1880s or even earlier, there are, you know, there's Māori resistance to right. land and there's pulling up of survey pigs, disruption Brilliant. of surveys, okay. you know, to prevent yeah. the land being taken. So, okay. Um, but why why would people join a land league in New Zealand? Yeah, so I mean that's the thing. So we end up with these people like um, Michael David coming over um, and speaking on, on the rights of of tenants and land leagues, and then we've got, I suppose, a significant character coming to New Zealand, coming to New Zealand, and yeah. quite a number of trips from the late nineteenth century into as far as nineteen eleven, and we have people, significant figures like Robert Stout, who then becomes Premier of New. New Zealand later on taking up the cause and when we have somebody like him who does a talk in Invercargill and then publishes a pamphlet on the rights of like ten farmers in Ireland um, and then he does another talk here in Dunedin and so it goes on and we end up with these land league movements starting up so Irish people who were then living here joined these land leagues and they contribute money to the cause so they're oh, okay. effectively sending money, money. home mm. for the cause and of course, at home, people don't have money and we can't emphasise that enough. I mean, Irish people do not have money and they yeah. don't have much rights of, of anything at the time. So the people who are here who make it good for themselves, they're sending the money home and that really pushes it forward. And it's the same. And that develops then into the home rule movement because then we've got the Irish land leaguers, leaguers looking at what people have here and they're thinking, this is the answer. Why concentrate on land league movements and protecting tenants? We need self-government. If we were having a government like New Zealand has, that's how we would resolve this. So they're looking at the model of a um, responsible government and separation from Britain that would suit them rather than being under the... yeah under the thumb of the British. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. New Zealand, in a way, is providing a a political model. Yeah, New, New yeah. Zealand is providing the, the ideal, actually, of what what could probably work because, we, you know, from the, the English invaded um, Ireland in the 12th century. So we're talking about, you know, by the time we're talking about the time that the Irish are coming over here, they've had seven centuries of, yeah. you know, of this oppression. Um, and they fight back and the Irish fight back constantly. And there's there's rebellions that, that spring up, every some bigger than the others, like the 1798 rebellion, which lasts for months and travels through the entire of Ireland, really. Um, 
But you're fighting against the might of the British Empire. No, it's never going to be enough of a population to to be able to fight out the British Empire, the, the power, the ammunition, the soldiers. And in many cases, there are even Irish men that are in the British Army as well. So, so you, you want to go through constitutional means. And if you go yeah. through constitutional means, you go for what New Zealand has and you look at home rule. And perhaps that's the way through. Why was Ireland so important to the British? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a kind of key question, isn't it? And if we, I think it's made it clearer as to why Ireland was so important since I've moved here, because you realise, well, how does New Zealand get this self-government and why are the British OK with this and they're, they're supportive of it? It's the distance. We've got Ireland as the nearest neighbour yeah. of Britain. It and it's will also always... that long history, isn't it? Because New Zealand's quite particular because of the timing of settlement. Right. You know, because the Aborigines Protection Society's been active. Yes, of course. You know, so the, yeah. the treaty, in a way, uh, settlement here is at a much later date yeah. than, say, America or Canada. or So New Zealand's very particular in terms of timing, whereas yeah. you've got that long history. You know, that, Absolutely. I mean, the English probably thought, well, it's our country. Yeah. They've been there so long. Yeah. And some of, them, some of them were the big landlords, weren't yeah. they? So. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, the timing does make a big difference. Like, yeah. it is that... That's just part of our land. Yeah. But you've also got the position as well of the country that even if we're thinking back to the times where countries can be attacked and, you know, at any given time, Ireland is a prime site. It's a prime location. If you want to invade Britain, you go through Ireland. So you need to have your base there to really protect yourself as well. Yeah. But you've also got the fact that as the British Empire is growing and expanding, and I think that's back to your time thing, Ireland becomes important as an example if you're starting to colonise other countries and suddenly these Irish are totally unruly and somehow they've managed to overthrow you and overpower you, how does that look to the other countries? So it's really in many ways used as an example, I think, as well. But also, you're right, you've got the land is taken and it's given, the Irish land then is given as really rewards for other people. So high-ranking soldiers will be given thousands of acres of land as a reward for conquering and and oppressing and and killing effectively effectively Irish chieftains. So what do you do then when you've given out all this land? Yeah, because they're part of the British aristocracy. Yeah. yeah, and it's extraordinary, even as a child. And I mean, I think this went up into like the 1980s and 90s. I mean, certainly... Um, as a child, my parents were paying, they'd bought their house, but they were paying a land rate to a British landlord. And this was something that my father eventually just borrowed money to pay off because he was so appalled at it. But they still owned the land, land parcels. Yeah. Mm, mm. So um, that connection between England and Ireland is being mm. challenged right now, isn't it, by Brexit? Yes. So how does that Uh, What does that make you think about the future for Ireland? Do you know, it's really interesting because I think many Irish people panicked a little bit at Brexit because it was the idea that we've still got a small part, six counties of our 32 counties that are still part of the United Kingdom. Um, in Northern Ireland, which was supposed to be a temporary setup, but it's still there 100 years later. Um, that kind of very small state will now exit from the EU yeah. with Britain. And that's a concern for many reasons because we don't want the idea. And, you know, many people are aware that there was so much trouble caused for generations over the partitioning off of Ireland. But 
now it looks that actually that's even got to be more unviable to keep those tiny, that tiny amount of land on the top of the island of Ireland out of the EU. So actually we're leading into something that you can see happening towards a reunification of Ireland, which is what many people, including myself, would, would love to see, certainly yeah. in my lifetime. Yeah. And we've just had a recent um, election at the start of February this year and Sinn Féin have actually been topping the polls and they are the Republican Party whose main aim would be the reunification of Ireland. And this is the first time that they've ever topped the polls, yeah. that they've got the, the largest amount of first preference votes. Mm. So actually, in some ways, Brexit may end up helping us from a political basis that will end up being United Ireland. On the other instance as well, and I think many people might have overlooked the fact that Ireland is now, even though our national language is Irish, and in our constitution, it accepts English as a second and acceptable language. We're now the only English-speaking nation in the EU. And this... Yeah, that's so interesting, It's really interesting it? because yeah. it makes us really important for yeah. countries like New Zealand. Yeah. So, which seems to have spurred off the idea of New Zealand opening their first ever embassy in Dublin. And that happens during the time of the Brexit negotiations. Right. And, and, and recently, uh, they've... The Irish have opened an embassy here. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Yeah, So we've got reciprocal embassies. So actually, from a trade point of view, Ireland will be... And we've already seen many countries who want um, a place into into the EU settling their offices in Ireland instead. Right. We've got uh, only a short time left. Mm. So perhaps... Do you think quickly that there are lessons that Ireland might have learned from New Zealand and vice versa? I do. And I think one of the biggest ones actually is realising that um, New Zealand and Ireland set up their government systems very similar to the colonisers, essentially. But New Zealand has, since 1951, abolished the upper house, which I think is what Ireland should do as well, because it's costly, it's time effective for making decisions. So it's a really big one. But I think also when we've got these issues, especially with what's happening with the monarchy at the moment, there's a lot of people in New Zealand re-talking about things like a Republic of New mm. Zealand and severing ties. And I think that, yeah, they could learn some mistakes that Ireland have made, getting becoming a republic, but also some of the many good things that we've done as well. So a lot to learn from each other. Yeah, so that's why we think history is worth repeating. Absolutely. Because it tells us things that are so important in our current world today. So we hope you'll join us again for some more History Worth Repeating. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.